0: Father, we sing these words and we mean them, but we admit freely again today that we need your help to live them out so that everything we are, everything we're about is all for and all about Jesus. We pray that you would continue to work by your spirit in our lives to shape us and lead us forward to that end. And as we spend this time in your word together now, again, we need you to speak clearly to us. Help us not to miss what you're saying to each of us and to all of us as a church family today. Work among us, even through this time, in a way that will honor you and accomplish your purposes and and that will draw from us the appropriate response to you. King of kings, Lord of lords, our creator, our redeemer, our rescuer, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Let me ask you a question this morning if you could have any one superpower what would it be why would it be that one and what would you do with it how would you use it usa today did a poll recently of american adults not children American adults, in light of all the superhero movies, the resurgence of all of that kind of a thing, and they asked American adults, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? The top five answers were these. Number one, I would love to be able to read minds. Number two, I'd love to be able to fly. Number three, I'd love to be invisible. Number four... I would love to have super strength. And number five, I would love to be able to walk through walls. Those were the top five answers. The radio show, This American Life, picked up on that and followed up on it and did some interviews and some call-in shows and those kind of things. And in response and in summary to those, the commentator on that radio program made this statement. He said, What surprised me most was how quickly everyone answered that question. It's as though they'd already been thinking about it. They knew exactly what they were going to say, and they knew exactly how they would use the power that they were going to have. And he said their, their plans were not always flashy or heroic or all that noble. He said, typically, this is how it goes. People who turn invisible will sneak into the movies or onto airplanes. People who fly stop taking the bus. Here's one thing that pretty much no one ever says. I will use my power to fight crime. He said all these superhero movies about fighting crime, and yet nobody wants a superpower so that they can fight crime. He says no one seems to care about crime. Take, for instance, the guy who actually said, I don't think I'd want to spend a lot of time using my superpower for good. I mean, if you had to rescue somebody from a burning building or something like that, you might catch on fire. Wow. We want superpowers. We just want them all for us. Jeff, it looks like you're not going to be able to have a job anytime soon. Wow. Incredible. Well, let me ask you, that's kind of a fun discussion to have, maybe with your family or friends occasionally. If you could have a superpower, what would it be and how would you use it? It might give us a little window into each other's... Uh, Personality and our thought process and that kind of thing but let me be more realistic with you this morning. Let me ask you this question. If you could have one spiritual gift what would it be? Why? And what would you do with it? How would you use it? Would you use it for your benefit? Or would you use it for the good and glory of someone else? We've been walking this spring and summer through a series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We began in Acts chapter 1, and we saw that the presence of the Spirit of God is what makes the difference between one individual and another, one group of people and another. It is the presence of the Spirit of God that enables us to walk with God and empowers us to do what He called us to be and to do, and that is to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Then on Pentecost Sunday, we looked at Acts chapter 2 at the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And we saw there that the arrival of the Holy Spirit was clearly a a fulfillment, a keeping of the promise that God had given to do that, to send His Spirit, to indwell His people, to empower them for life and for ministry. But we noticed in that passage something that is very clear is this. You will never understand or experience anything to do with the Holy Spirit That promise fulfilled if you do not first respond to the first promise that God had made to send a deliverer, a rescuer, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, his son Jesus, to rescue you from your rebellion against God and the consequences of that. If you do not embrace Jesus first, the Holy Spirit will just be beyond you. Any discussion of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to understand. We then looked a few weeks ago at what it means to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. We looked into Galatians 5 together. We saw that the evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God in somebody's life is the fruit of the Spirit. And remember, we pointed this out very clearly. The grammar there is not, these are the fruits of the Spirit, like it's some kind of checklist. This is one thing. This is one fruit it's like an orange with all the pieces inside, all wrapped together. This is what the Spirit of God produces. This is who He is in His character and conduct. This is what He produces in the life of those in whom He dwells. So the evidence of the presence and power and work of the Spirit of God in someone's life is that we see the fruit of the Spirit there. And we saw that the fruit of the Spirit is demonstrated most readily and most obviously and clearly in how we interact with each other. Well, this morning, we want to pick back up. We've had a couple of weeks away from this series. We want to pick back up, and we want to talk about serving by the Spirit. We've talked about the Spirit's work in us in producing His fruit in us. Now we want to talk about the work of the Spirit among us together as God's people. He works in us individually. The demonstration of that is how we interact with each other, but he works among us collectively as he gifts, as he equips the body of Christ, the family of God, to serve each other and to serve with each other. So we're going to look at this today, what does it mean to serve by the Spirit? And to do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me this morning. Paul has been dealing with a number of issues in the life of the church in Corinth, which is in Greece. This is back in first century Greece. A church he had started, he had led people to Christ, he'd established a church. He is now gone, and there's been some correspondence back and forth. And we noticed a few weeks ago in chapter 11 that there was trouble at the table. There was trouble at the table. When they came together for the communion service, a time that was supposed to be about worship, about remembering Jesus, about honoring Jesus, about examining our own hearts, instead they had turned that into something all about themselves. They were trampling over each other and making this all about themselves. And Paul has corrected that. Now we come to chapter 12 and we deal with this issue, first of the spiritual gifts. Let's look at verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just pause there for a moment as we begin this look at spiritual gifts this morning. One of the things you have to understand if you are going to rightly understand, correctly understand 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is this. Paul is answering questions. He's not just pulling this out of the air and saying, well, I guess now we'll talk about this. He's answering questions. The first half of this letter, the first six chapters, uh, Paul is writing and he's instructing and he's feeding them more instruction as they walk with God. In verse 7, chapter 7 rather, verse 1, he makes this turn, this change. He says, now about the things you've written to me. The rest of the letter now, he is answering questions that they have asked. They've said, Paul, we're confused about some things. We have a lot of questions. You only taught us so many things. How do you, how do you help us with this? And so Paul has addressed all kinds of different issues. Uh, issues of marriage and sexuality. Issues of, of meat sacrifice to idols. All, all kinds of things that he's addressed. And as he walks through that list, he now gets to this area of spiritual gifts. And so one of the things you have to have set in your heart and your mind as you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is you understand he's answering a question. And so the goal of this passage is not to take their controversy and make it ours. The goal is to say, how did Paul answer that specific situation and question? How do we take that, what does he say about it, what does he say is behind it, how do we then learn about spiritual gifts and about our service in the body from what he says? How do we apply that to the rest? As Paul talks about the purpose and practice of spiritual gifts, their question is not, do spiritual gifts exist? Their question is, what is the purpose and how do we practice these gifts? So, you look at the setting here in the first, in chapter, verse uh, 2 and 3 rather, of chapter 12. And what is the setting? We're in Corinth, in first century Greece. And you have a bunch of people who have come to Christ. They become followers of Jesus out of some incredibly strange, dark, evil backgrounds. They come out of these pagan acts of worship and, and all the things that were associated with that. And that creates a few. Confusions now. For instance, they had seen and heard spiritual things. They'd been led by spiritual powers. They had seen some pretty incredible things take place. It was dark and it was evil and it did not come from the Lord, but they had seen and heard spiritual things. And so now in the life of this church, they're seeing and they're hearing spiritual things that are clearly beyond themselves and they're saying how does this fit? Is this from the Lord or is this from what we used to participate in? And if it is from the Lord this kind of thing is pretty impressive. Can we all participate? Those are the kinds of questions that they were asking. And so that's what they're sending out to Paul and Paul is writing back to address are these things legitimate and how do we go about working with them? So with that in mind keeping that Set, we're going to go forward now into chapter 12. There are two sections of chapter 12 that will really help us again to further understand the point of this passage. The next section is cha- verses 4 to 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Paul says there is diversity of gifts. Not everyone's going to have the same spiritual gift. There are diversities of service. That word service might be in your translation ministries. Ministries, service, servant, all the same root word there. Different kinds of ministry, different kinds of service. There are different kinds of, ESV says, activities. A better translation there is probably effects, impact. That God empowers. So what happens? There's a variety here of gifts, of activities, of ministry. But there's one Spirit who provides the gifts. There's one Lord Jesus who is being served. And there's one God, the Father, who empowers the whole thing and the result that he had intended. So that's what's going on here. So while there's diversity in gifts and ministry and, and impact and effect, there is unity in the source of the gifts. There is unity in the purpose of the gifts. There is to be unity in the practice of the gifts, and if we understand that and we have unity in the source, the purpose, and the practice of the gifts, there will be unity in the recipients of the gifts. That's where Paul's going with this. The emphasis of this entire passage is that there are diversity of gifts, but there is an unmistakable and unavoidable interdependence of those gifts and those people. There is an absolute connection that cannot be severed and must not be ignored. Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For each of these, uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's the point? The point is everyone in the body of Christ. Now this passage we're looking at has to do with followers of Jesus. Make make no mistake, that's what we're talking about. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus gets at least one spiritual gift, but nobody gets every gift. No one has them all. No one is an island unto himself, complete for life and service and ministry, without other people. And look at what the focus of verse 7 is. The focus is not on the gift the focus is on the purpose of the gift. What is the gift to be? It is a manifestation of the Spirit. Do you know what that means? It means when you and I serve with the gifts God's given us, we come together, we serve each other, and we serve with each other in the life of the church, in ministry, and sharing life together. When we do that, that is another evidence Manifestation, it is just another proof, another evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God here among His people and of His hand at work as we move forward together. Our service together is not about what gift do I have. Our service together is look at as we work together in unity of purpose and heart It is another demonstration of the fact that the spirit of god actually is here among us and he is freely at work. The gift is a manifestation of the spirit and the purpose is what? What does verse 7 say? The purpose is for the common good. It's not about me. It's about us it's about the common good it's not what can these people do for me today it's about how can we together serve God in a way that meets the needs of each one involved and builds us up in the faith as we walk forward sharing the gospel of Jesus it's not about me he then goes on to say For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healing by the one spirit To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What does that tell us? It tells us the gifts of the Spirit are given by the Spirit, through the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and they're given to us as the Spirit himself sees fit as a manifestation of his presence here for the common good as we walk with God and serve him together. Now, Robert Gramacchi defines spiritual gifts this way. A spiritual gift is an ability given to the Christian out of the grace of God through the Holy Spirit and controlled by the Spirit for Christian service and growth. That makes sense, does it not? We understand that. But when we come to this passage, we read this list of gifts and we go, wow, what's that all about? Let me tell you this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 11 is not an exhaustive list. It is not a complete list of the gifts of the Spirit. Well, how can I say that? Well, because if I turn to Romans 12, I get a different list of gifts of the Spirit. If I turn to Ephesians 4, I get a different list of gifts of the Spirit. If I turn to 1 Peter 4, I get a different list of gifts of the Spirit. So this is not an exhaustive list. I have to keep that in mind. I'm not convinced that Scripture gives us an exhaustive list. The point is the Spirit empowers us and equips us for ministry, and as I serve, and as you serve, and as we serve together, the Spirit makes His presence seen and known and felt as we honor the Lord, build one another up in the faith, and reach out with the gospel. Now, that is not an exhaustive list. Why then does he choose these gifts? The reason he's dealing with these gifts in chapter 12 is because he's answering a question. Remember the first couple of verses of this chapter? These are the types of gifts that have them confused and competing with each other. They're confused. Are these legitimate? Some of these look and smell like what we came out of. Can we trust these? And the ones that do trust them and embrace them, competing with each other, saying, these are pretty impressive, I've got more than you do, and they're fighting over who has the most impressive gift. That's why Paul addresses these gifts in this particular passage. And so he walks through and he begins answering their questions by talking about the gifts of the Spirit. There are a variety of gifts, but there's one Spirit. There is unity in the source, the purpose, and the practice of the gifts. The gifts of the Spirit are given as an evidence of his presence in and among God's people and his work there for the common good. He then moves on, Paul starts to deal with who are the spiritually gifted. We talked about the gifts, now let's look at the gifted, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... Uh, And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This, he says, just as your body has many parts, but it is one body, that is the way it is with the body of Christ. That's one of the the descriptors given in in the Bible for the followers of Jesus, the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is is made up of many different parts, but it is one body. These gifts come from one Spirit. And verse 12 and 13, talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is not receiving a particular gift. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit takes a follower of Jesus. As soon as somebody surrenders themselves to Jesus, he takes that person and he baptizes them. The word is baptizo, it means immerse, it means soak right in. He plunges them into the body of Christ. They are now a part of the family of God. They're a part of the family of Christ, the body of Christ. That's another picture that water baptism gives us. As we baptize by immersion, a follower of Jesus who says, I am now going to follow him, I I give him everything I've got, I trust him completely, I surrender to him, and I now am going to be baptized to demonstrate what's gone on in here. Romans 6 says when the person goes down in the water and comes up, it's a demonstration that I have died to my sin and myself, and I've been buried just like Jesus was, and just like Jesus was risen to new life, I now am living new life in him. Another picture of water baptism is the baptism of the Spirit, where the Spirit of God takes that believer and plunges them into the body of Christ, and they are now a part of the body of Christ, the family of God, walking forward together. All right. Having said that, that it's one body with many parts, but it is one unified body, Paul then launches into two different sections. Verses 14 to 20, he looks at my assessment of my service, my value, my contribution to the body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If your foot woke up this morning and said to your hand, you know, I'm not a hand. I don't, I don't get the, the visual impact of a hand. People don't decorate me with rings like they do with the hand. I don't, I'm not seen by the hand. I don't get to do cool things like the hand does. You know, I kind of smell. They cover me up with socks. They hide me away in shoes. I, I, I just, I'm not part of the body anymore. Would that make the foot less part of the body? No, you need your foot. The body needs the foot, right? Just because the the, the foot says, I just don't feel like I get enough credit. I'm not seen. I'm not valuable. I'm not, why don't I get more credit? That doesn't make it less a part of the body. And he says, that's what it's like in the body of Christ. I don't get to make an assessment of my value and contribution to the body by saying, well, I don't get to do what that person does, or I I don't seem to be as as noticed or appreciated as that person, so I guess I'm not really part of the body. That does not change the fact that if you're a member of Christ, you're a member of the body. the, The question is, why can't I get credit? That's what Paul's addressing here in these verses, 14 to 20. Well, John Wooden often said, do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. (laughs) Don't focus so much on what you're not gifted to do and what you can't do. Get busy with what you can. That's the point. Now, here's an illustration from baseball. On June 8, 2014, at uh, Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg, Florida, the Seattle Mariners beat, shut out the Tampa Bay Rays 5 to nothing. Seattle's prize ace pitcher, Felix Hernandez, often referred to as King Felix, Felix Hernandez pitched a wonderful game that day. He had a career-best 15 strikeouts. But after seven innings, he was pulled from the game. He had pitched scoreless seven innings, 15 strikeouts, but he was pulled from the game because he'd already thrown 100 pitches and they were trying to save him for the rest of the year. So, who came in? Yervis Medina came in, the relief pitcher, and he pitched the eighth inning. Medina was given the win officially on his record because it was in the top of the ninth inning that Seattle scored all five of their runs. What does that mean? It means that in the next day's paper, when you picked out the paper and you looked at the official box score, Felix Hernandez, having pitched a wonderful game, one of the best pitching efforts of his life, 15 strikeouts, he was not listed as having a win. It just said no decision. But this guy who comes in and plays one inning near the end of the game, and others came in behind him to finish up the ninth, he played one inning, he got the win. So on his record for contract negotiations, he says, look, I got a win. Now, can you imagine Felix Hernandez says, Well, because I don't get the win, why don't I get noticed? Why, why don't I get the win? I want the win in my record. That's ridiculous. And he just walked? That's not how it works. What happened was, he laid the foundation for the team's win. Three of his teammates came in behind him and worked to finish that off as the rest of the team played in the field and at bat. They all worked together to achieve a win for who? The team. That was the point of the game, was whether the team would win or not. And they all worked together for that. And so Hernandez worked. He wasn't credited in the statistics, but he was just part of a team. U.S. President Harry Truman said, and Ronald Reagan, when he was president, had that quote on his desk, It's amazing what can be accomplished. There's no limit to what can be accomplished by someone who does not care who gets the credit." Just get to work. Just get to work. Now, the next few verses, 21 down to 25, Paul addresses the other side of that coin. Instead of this being my assessment of my contribution and value to the body, he says, now let's talk about my assessment of your contribution and value in the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you, Imagine your eye looking down at your hand this morning and saying, yeah, whatever, okay, you can do a few things, but without me, you're just groping around in the dark. I don't need you. I got things covered, right? Would that make sense? No. Why? You're both members of the body. The eye needs the hand. Look at. I can see that apple. I just can't pick it up and eat it. Like the eye needs the hand, right? That's the thing. We don't get to look at someone else in the body and say your contribution is is, is useless because it's not what mine is. Mine is so much superior. That's not how it works. But people look sometimes and say, instead of saying, well, why don't I get credit? They turn that coin over and they say, well, why does he get credit? Why does she get so much credit for what she does? That's not fair. Once again, it's all about me. Here's here's another illustration sticking with baseball. This past February, the Wall Street Journal stated in an article that Major League Baseball player Jeff Mathis was one of the most hotly anticipated free agents this year in baseball. What's surprising about him is that he's 36 years old, he's a catcher, and he owns a lifetime batting average of 198. Now, if you're not a baseball fan and you don't understand statistics, let me just tell you this, that is awful like off-the-charts horrendous. That batting average is so bad that, listen to this, among all players who have played Major League Baseball and have had at least 2,500 career at-bats, only one batter has ever hit worse. Bill Bergen, who started playing in 1901. I know statistics go back to 1876. So when asked about this, Mathis said, well, of course, I'd like to have better numbers on the back of my baseball card. (laughs) I wish I was a better hitter, I wish I could contribute at the plate more, but what can I say, that's just the way it is. So they reached out and they interviewed one of his coaches, and this coach said, yeah, if you just look at the statistics and the numbers, you kind of scratch your head and say, how is this guy even playing, let alone thriving in our game? This makes no sense. The article goes on to say, the answer is simply this, it's his defense. See, it's long been understood that the back catcher is the most important position on a baseball team. He is involved in absolutely everything that goes on in every pitch of the game. He controls a lot of what happens. The catcher is invaluable to the rest of the team. Jeff Mathis is known for being a master pitch framer. You know what that is? It's when he takes his glove and he just swings it and catches a ball and twists his wrist as he catches the ball to make the umpire think that a ball was actually a strike. He's also a genius at blocking pitches that are in the dirt and going wild. He he slides out there like a hockey goalie and stops them. And he's known as one of the best game callers in baseball. That means he looks at his pitcher and he knows what that guy can throw. He looks at the batter and knows what this guy can hit. And he says, in this situation, this pitcher needs to throw this pitch to this batter and here's where he needs to throw it. And so one of the general managers of Major League Baseball, when asked about why this guy was such a hot commodity, even though he can't hit, said amongst catchers in professional baseball he is held up as the standard because he's the best at what these guys all want to be best at can you imagine if somebody heard that jeff mathis was signed to be the catcher for their team and said are you kidding me why would we bring this clown in he can't hit like i can he doesn't hit any home runs there's no glory in that would that make sense no they would say, look, it, we've got a guy who does what he does so well. This is fantastic. We're bringing him in. It makes the whole team better. He doesn't have to hit home runs. Baseball players don't just say, because you can't hit home runs, you're useless. It's a team thing. To put it another way, the New England Patriots for 15 years have been one of the best teams in professional football. One of the reasons credited by all the coaches and players and management is this. They all say it's because we all embrace here Un selfishness. It's not about any one person or player, it's about the team. And in fact, the director of player personnel, the vice president who makes all the acquisitions of players and signs the contracts, has a big sign in his office for his benefit and the benefit of anyone else who comes in to sign a contract that says, we are building a team, not collecting talent. If you're here to make this about you, no thanks. We're building a team here. You see, if Paul points out that if we say, well, I'm no good because I don't get noticed, or if we say you're no good because you don't do what I do, we're totally missing the point. Both of those questions are selfish. Why can't I get noticed? Why do you get noticed? It's all about me when the point is the gifts of the Spirit are working together, is meant to be a manifestation, a demonstration of His presence and power at work among us. God is here, and He's at work and it's meant to be for the common good. It's not about any one individual. Well, God says in these verses 21 to 25, God says through Paul that the body performs many functions. Each of those functions is important. Each of those functions needs to be performed, and God decides which part will do which function. So look at verse 24, the second half of verse 24, and let's take a quick look at this. Why did God put the body together that way with such variety? God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The point of what God has done in putting together this diverse group of people with diverse gifts is this interdependence that we all come together and we demonstrate that God is here among us. He is working here and we're working for the common good. And the point is that there's no division, but that means that instead there is unity. That we care for each other. That we suffer together and that we rejoice together. That I take personally what happens to you and you take personally what happens to me because we are in this together. We belong to each other. So the fact that you use your gift and how you use your gift, those two things are much more important than what your gift is. The question is not, which gift do you have? The question is, are you serving with it, and how do you go about doing that? Look at verse 27. You see, we are interdependent on and incomplete without each other. Verse 27 says, now you, that's a plural you, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. These are the things you're fighting over, he says. Are all apostles? Answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. He says there's this variety of gifts. You, plural, make up the body of Christ individually you're part of it, and what you are to do and what we are to accomplish cannot be done individually. It just can't. How do you live in unity? By yourself. How can we care for each other if we're not connected? How can we rejoice with each other if our lives aren't connected? How do we suffer with each other if our lives are not being shared? You can't do those things individually. That's incredibly important for us to understand. You and I come to Jesus one heart at a time. One heart at a time. As one by one, we understand the truth that we stand before Almighty God, our Creator, the Lord of everything. We stand guilty of rebellion against Him. And we are beat. No matter how good we are, we're just us and there's no way we measure up. There's nothing we could do to cover up or make up for that rebellion against Him. And so the Bible calls it repentance. When we turn 180 degrees, we turn our back on doing things our own way, and we embrace him and say, Jesus, you are Lord, I'm not. I'm going to do things your way. Jesus, you are righteous, and I am not. But you came and you died on the cross for me. You took God's judgment for my rebellion, for me, so that I can stand now in your righteousness, not my own. I stand before God on your merits, not my own. And when he looks at me, he sees you. And because you are Lord and I am not, and you have given me forgiveness and you're the only one who can, and you have given me eternal life, and you're the only one who can, I will give you everything I have, and I will come and walk with you. Is that you? Have you done that? If you haven't, if you have questions, I would love to meet with you and talk with you later about that. Talk to me at the door. Send me an email. Give me a phone call. We'll set up a time this week to just sit down and look at some questions together. But that is absolutely critical. That is your first step. It's the most important thing in your entire existence is to surrender to Jesus and be right with God the only way you can through Him. We come to Christ one heart at a time. But listen, listen very carefully. In the Western world, we have really twisted this out of control in the last 80 years or so. We come to Christ one heart at a time. After that, we are in this together. After that, there's no such thing as I'm on my own. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom. God says from the beginning of the scriptures to the end that he is working in human history for what? To collect a people for his name. Not a group of individuals for his name. A people for his name. So I would humbly suggest that anyone who says... That I come to Jesus individually, and then I just keep walking with him on my own. I don't need anybody else. I don't need to connect. I don't need to be a part of anything else. I humbly suggest that you simply pick up a New Testament and read it. Because right from the beginning of this thing called the church, it is an institutional, organized, group, collective, corporate thing. We are a family, we are the body of Christ. No member gets to wander off from the body and be on its own somewhere. We're in this together. That's what Paul is teaching here. Critical for us to understand. So what does verse 31 mean then? After all of this, he says, these gifts that you've been fighting for, and again, he lists the gifts that they've been arguing for, the same ones that he's been talking about. He says, after all of this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, what does that mean? You just told us not to argue over gifts. Verse 31 in the original Greek language is kind of tricky grammatically. So there's two ways to look at this phrase. One is to think that Paul's saying this negatively. He's saying, look, why are you looking after, chasing after the greater gifts? That's ridiculous. Let me show you a better way. Don't do that. The other is to say that he's positively instructing them to pursue the higher gifts, but that he's showing them that the gifts that they think are the higher gifts are actually the lower gifts. The gifts that that kind of put you out front, whatever. The gifts that matter, he says, are the gifts that appear to be lower, the gifts of service. The gifts where we're serving each other, we're working for each other's good, the common good, where we're helping each other. When we're not out in front. What did Jesus say in Matthew 20, verse 27? The mark of greatness in the kingdom of God is not your achievements or your position, it's your servanthood. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. That's the way it works. So, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts and he answers their questions about these. Yes, they exist, there's a variety of them, but there's unity in in their source, in their purpose, and in their practice. They're there to demonstrate that the Spirit is here at work. And they're there for the common good he talks about the spiritually gifted everyone who's a follower of jesus has been gifted somehow in some way and we are interdependent on each other to have this all come together in a way that serves the common good and achieves god's purposes as we serve together but then he moves and he talks about something very significant by completing this thought and this is where i don't like again where we put the chapter divisions in we did this later to help us out. And I mean, for convenience sake, to help us be able to turn in our Bibles to the same passage. Paul wrote a letter. This continues on. And Paul then speaks about the spiritually useful. He says, I will show you a still more excellent way. You want to know how to handle this whole thing with gifts better? I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you what it means to be spiritually useful. Remember, Galatians 5 told us the Spirit's work in us is producing the character of Christ, and that's demonstrated as we interact with each other. Here, we've been talking about the Spirit's work among us, having these gifts, using these gifts to care for each other and serve each other for the common good that Christ may be seen. But Paul goes on to say how we use these gifts is absolutely critical, absolutely critical. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You guys are fighting over whether or not you have the gift of tongues. You can speak in different languages. You can speak some kind of heavenly language, all these kind of things. You guys are fighting over all of this. But you don't love each other. So it doesn't matter which one of those you've got. Guess what? You're just making a racket. You're giving people a headache. You're distracting people. You accomplish nothing. You're just making a bunch of noise. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. A full head and an empty heart add, add up to zero in the kingdom. Doesn't matter what I've got with all these gifts. If I don't love, I add up to nothing in the kingdom. If I give away all I have, and if I even go so far as to deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. But I sacrifice everything I own. I just give till it hurts. I give till there's nothing left. I'll even give my life and my body as a martyr. Great, but if you don't love anyone, it's accomplished zero. It's zero good. You're making noise and not helping if you're using these gifts with no love for each other, Paul told them. If you're using your gifts with a full head and an empty heart, Paul says, it doesn't matter what it looks like in Corinth, you're accomplishing nothing. If you're sacrificing everything you've got and you're even willing to die there in Greece for the sake of Jesus, it's useless if you don't love each other. He says these, seem, these things seem great and you're fighting over them because they seem great, but they accomplish nothing because you guys are arguing over them and competing for them. And that route goes all the way back to chapter 11 and the way they treated each other when they came to the communion table together. It was evidenced and demonstrated right there. And he says, because you're fighting over these things, you're not accomplishing anything. So instead, he says, here's the way to go. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things, love never ends. What is he telling us? It's not about me. These gifts are not about me. It's about my love for the Lord and my love for my brothers and sisters in Christ as we serve together. That is what makes us useful in the body of Christ. Is our heart for God and for each other. And when we love each other as we serve, who cares who has what gift? God's put us all together and let's just serve Him and make make it clear to everyone who watches the Spirit of God is here. He's at work. Look at what He's doing for the common good and the good of the mission of representing Jesus in our community. Do you see that here from this passage? 1 Corinthians 13 is not for Valentine's Day. Now, there's some great applications there to marriage, isn't there? And to love. Sure. But what's He talking about here? Chapter 14 is talking about gifts. Chapter 12 is talking about gifts. What do you think chapter 13 might have to do? Gifts. He's talking about the way that we serve. That's what he's talking about here. He goes on in chapters 8, verses 8 to 13, rather, of this chapter, to tell us that gifts are temporary. Gifts are partial. No one's got them all. Gifts will end when that which is complete comes, when Jesus comes. We're not going to need these spiritual gifts. But you know what we are going to need right now and right on through eternity? Love for each other. That's what we're going to need. That's what we're going to need. So serving by the Spirit as the body of Christ and in the body of Christ, what do we do with all of this? We know, we, we know something about spiritual gifts now. We, we understand who the spiritually gifted are, and we understand what it means to be spiritually useful is to take those gifts and in humility and love serve each other for the common good and the glory of God. But where do we go with this? Well, again, this is for followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd love to talk with you after about this. But if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, here's a couple of things that I would say. Number one, if you're here with us, join in and start serving. In humility, as we love each other, just let's just start serving each other and with each other. That's huge. Because we're told that is the point. Well, where do I start? I don't know what my gift is. That's okay. Just start. You know there's things around your house that just need to get done? You notice that? <laughs> Nobody says, "I got the gift of, you know, doing the dishes." <laughs> It's just, well, why didn't the dishes get done? Well, that's not my gift. How would that discussion end in your house? (laughs) I think it's the same way in the body of Christ sometimes. Well, why didn't that get done? Well, I don't have that gift. It just needs to get done. You saw the need, step in and let's go. And as we just start serving with a heart of humility before God and love for each other, and we just start serving, we serve each other and we serve with each other, amazing things will happen as you keep your eyes and your ears open the doors that God will open, the opportunities that He'll provide, and the fit that He'll find for you. And you'll go, oh, this is why I'm here. This is fantastic. And He'll open that door and He'll put that together. He'll piece it together for you. Let me also tell you this. In 2008, Russian Orthodox Church officials made a startling discovery. They found out that one of their church buildings had completely disappeared. Completely gone. It's incredible. What happened was, they had closed that church a decade before, just northeast of Moscow, in this particular town. Because the church wasn't doing so well, so they closed the church down. Ten years later, there was a resurgence of, of that church in, in the area, and they were looking for reopening that church. And so the powers that be said, okay, we're going to send a couple guys out there, check out the buildings. Yeah, we got to clean it up, make sure it's good to go as so we reopen that church. And they got there, and it was gone. Well, they hadn't sold it. They didn't figure on aliens. <laughs> what happened? So they went and they carried out this investigation. You know what they found? they found all of those bricks that put that church together could be found in a neighboring town. What had happened was over a period of years, a developer, a builder in a neighboring town told the local people who had next to nothing, I'll pay you one ruble, about four cents, for each of those bricks. They're not using that building anyway. And these people had gone, and they had chipped away One brick at a time, they'd taken this church down and they'd carried it off and they'd sold those bricks one at a time to this builder so that he could use them for his other projects. One brick at a time, that church came down and slowly but surely, it disappeared. It completely disappeared. Let me just connect this up this way. That church didn't go from being a church building to not a church building in one One fell swoop. It was just a gradual, one brick at a time, one brick at a time, one brick at a time. Look at it this way. The Bible talks about the church being the body of Christ. But Peter also talks about the the church being a building that God is building, with each of us being living stones, living bricks built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. A building representing His glory. A building demonstrating His presence there in the community. That's what God is building together. One brick at a time. And so, churches don't disappear in one decision, in one choice, or one situation. That would be very rare. How do they disappear? One brick at a time. When one of these living stones says, you know, I think I'll just watch a TV preacher. One of these living stones says, you know, I got got better gifts than these people got. I'll I'll just do my own thing. When, When one brick says, you know, I don't really need the organized church. I've got everything I need right in here and I'll just walk with Jesus on my own. Completely contrary to Scripture. Each decision takes away one more living stone. And in the end, the church that was intended by God to represent his presence there in that community amongst his people, bring glory to him and lead more to him, It's just God. It's just God. Here's, Here's another thing that I would say to us this morning if you're here and you're following Jesus. If you're serving, fantastic. Do you have a friend who isn't? Just invite them to come and join you. Come join with me and let's... Let's work at this together. Let's see what God might do. Over the summer, as people take vacations, man, we can overlap. We can go for a month without seeing each other because of the way our vacations overlap and that kind of thing. But if you come to church and you look around and you see that somebody's not here, call them. Hey, I, I missed you at church on Sunday. Everything okay? Are you sick? Do you need anything? What can I do to help? No, we were away. Oh, good. How was your vacation? It's not the same without you. Glad glad to hear everything's okay looking forward to seeing you on sunday and then the next sunday when you see them walk over shake their hand and let them know how good it is to see them here with you make sure you connect that's in here what do we do with other ministries out there i'll just simply say this we need to be aware of many other true ministries out there in our community that god is using aren't you grateful for that yeah There are things that people and groups and churches that are calling themselves ministries that frankly aren't because they're not preaching the Bible and not preaching the gospel. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people that are legitimately holding up the Word of God and preaching the gospel of Jesus. They might look a little bit different than us, they might do a few things different than us, but they're preaching the gospel of Jesus. What do we do with them? Well, we're not in competition with them. We're not in competition with them. We're in this together. And so we pray that God will bless their efforts in their community and bring people to Christ just as we pray that he'll do the same thing here for us. We cheer them on, we pray for them, and we move forward together. Serving by the Spirit involves the Spirit's work among us corporately. In it all, as we serve each other and as we serve together, may the Spirit's work and presence be evident here at Harrow Baptist, amen? May Christ be seen. May Christ be honored and people in our community reached with the gospel. May the people of God be strengthened and built up in the faith as we use the diverse but interdependent gifts that God has given by His Spirit for His glory and the common good. Are you in? Let's sing together.